0: Today we have the privilege of being able to see how one of Paul's favorite churches got started. Every church that the Apostle Paul planted was different. Galatians, for instance, they seem to have this tendency to gravitate toward bad theology. So Paul wrote a book to them to sort of bring them back into the playing field of sound doctrine and sound understanding of what the gospel is. There were some churches that were for a lack of a better word, a burden to the Apostle. Corinth. Man, what a circus Corinth was. That was a petri dish for every conceivable bad doctrine and bad practice and everything gone wrong was in Corinth. Other churches were a sheer joy and delight for the Apostle Paul. Such was the church at Philippi. The Philippian church seemed to have a special connection with the Apostle. He seemed to have a special love for them. I went back this last week and I read the book of Philippians, and I would encourage you to do that sometime in the next couple of weeks, to read that book, and as you do, just observe how the Apostle speaks of them, and how he encourages them, and how he shows his affection and his love for them. Keep in mind that Philippians is written at the end of the book of Acts, But as you read the book of Philippians, and it will only take you a few minutes to read it, it's four short chapters, just observe how the Apostle Paul talks to those Christians. I long to see you, he says in chapter 1. You are on my heart, I pray for you daily. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle says, therefore, my beloved brethren, how I long to see you, my joy And my crown, my beloved, is just sticky, isn't it? It's just gooey and feely and just almost going overboard and is pouring out of his affection to those believers in Philippi. And listen, folks, they loved him back. Oh, they did. Paul writes to them and he says, When I left Macedonia, you were the only ones, not the Thessalonians, not the Corinthians, You were the only ones that shared with me in the needs of my ministry time and time again. They sent him gifts and offerings and they also sent people to find out how's Paul doing. They were concerned for him. It was a reciprocal love. I think Philippi and I think the Philippian church had a special heart in the apostle, a special place in the apostle Paul's heart. He loved them and they loved him back. And Luke spends a lot of ink telling us about what went on in Philippi. You know, when you consider how long Paul stayed in Philippi compared to how long he was in Ephesus, how long he was in Corinth, Dr. Luke spends a lot of time telling us about what goes on there and a little bit of time compared to, when you compare it to how long he was in other places. Almost 35 verses of chapter 16 is spent telling us about three episodes in the city of Philippi. And we're going to be looking at these three episodes in the coming weeks. The first encounter that Paul has is with this woman named Lydia down by a riverside. We're going to look at that this morning. The second encounter that he has is with a demon-possessed slave girl who was being used by her masters for profit in divination. And Paul's encounter with her, and that ended up really leading to the third encounter that Paul has, which is with the Philippian jailer in prison with Silas. So those are the three encounters, and it is out of those three encounters that Paul has that the birth of of the church in Philippi comes. The church is birthed out of those three instances. So we're going to look at the first one today with Lydia. You'll need to have your Bibles open and looking down at them in Acts chapter 16, because we're going to be looking at verses 13, 14, and 15, the first encounter that Paul has with Lydia. Read them with me, beginning at verse 13. Now in case you weren't here last week, you wonder, how did Paul get at Philippi? It was as the result of the vision. You remember the Macedonian man? Not permitted to preach the word in Asia. Not permitted to preach the word in Bithynia. Drove Paul right down this narrow corridor to Troas. And there he stands on the edge of the Aegean Sea. Where do we go from here? And he sees the vision of the Macedonian man. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And so they conclude, the Lord has called us to Macedonia. So they go across the sea, stopping at Neapolis on the other side of the Aegean Sea. They make their way to Philippi. Verse 13 says... And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. Now what I want you to notice this morning is how the church of Philippi started as a result of three things. In verse 13, it was the result of Paul's strategy. Verse 14, it was the result of God's sovereignty. And verse 15, it is the result of Lydia's service. First of all, let's take a look at Paul's strategy, verse 13. They went into the Sabbath day. Now it was Paul's strategy, it was his custom, it was his way of doing evangelism, that whenever he came to a new city, in which he intended to plant a church, guess what Paul did? He made his way into the synagogue where he would find God-fearing Gentiles and God-fearing Jews. And there he would begin to reason with them and preach to them and explain the scriptures to them. And then there would be all kinds of responses to that. Some people would believe. Some people wouldn't believe. Some people would mount a fierce opposition to oppose him. But he went into the synagogues where he would find people who were open to the gospel message. And there Paul would preach and reason and teach and share Christ with them. That was his strategy. When he got into Philippi, guess what he found? Not a synagogue. There's no mention of a synagogue in Philippi. Why is that? You know why it is? There's a historical reason why there was no synagogue in Philippi. How do we know there was no synagogue in Philippi? Because Paul on the Sabbath day, it says, didn't go into the synagogue. Where did he go? He went outside the city of Philippi to a riverside, and there he was supposing that there would be a place of prayer. Now, according to rabbinic teachings and according to the the rabbi's way of doing things at the time, if a city had such a small Jewish population that they did not have ten uh, heads of households or uh, men in the city who could form a synagogue, no synagogue was to be formed. It required ten men, ten heads of households. If that didn't exist within the city, then the rabbis taught a place outside in the open air should be sought where they would pray and they would gather together to read the Shema, to read the law, and then to discuss it amongst themselves. There's no synagogue in Philippi, so Paul, rather than going into a synagogue, went outside the city to the riverside where he was assuming or supposing that there would likely be a place of prayer. Now the historical reason why there was no synagogue in Philippi is this, in 49 AD, which would be about a year, maybe a year and a half prior to this, the Emperor Claudius issued a decree that expelled the Jews from Rome, and his claim was this, that the Jews were practicing customs that were contrary to the decrees of the Emperor, and that they were causing civil unrest within Rome. And so Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome. You say, well, that's in Rome. We're talking about in Philippi in Acts 16. So... What does Philippi have to do with Rome? Do you remember I told you last week Philippi was a Roman colony? As a Roman colony, Philippi likely would have followed the example that Rome set. They would just have followed suit with Rome. So it is likely that in Philippi they did what they did in Rome. They expelled all of the Jews. Would explain why they were outside the city. Because according to Claudius' decree, they couldn't practice their faith inside of Rome. So they would go outside of Rome. In Philippi, likely the same thing. They would not be able to meet as a synagogue or as a group inside the city, so they went outside the city to a riverside. It's interesting to notice the charge that they bring against Paul down in verse 20 and 21. After he cast the demon out of the slave girl, the owners kind of get upset with this. In verse 20 it says, When they brought them, that is, Paul and Silas, to the chief magistrates, they said, These men, Listen to the charge. These men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews. Sounds just like what they said in Rome, doesn't it? Yeah, they knew how to get to the magistrates. These guys are doing exactly what they did in Rome. So there's no synagogue in Philippi. Paul, assuming that there would be a place of prayer, makes himself makes his way outside of the city to a riverside. And by the way, it is the same riverside of the river that's pictured on the front of your bulletin. That's the Gangites River outside of Philippi. They made their way to that, likely that river about a mile outside of the city of Philippi. And there Paul comes across some ladies. Now, what I want you to notice about the Apostle Paul's strategy is this. The Apostle Paul went to those first, not exclusively, but initially, to those who would be most open to the Gospel. He went to a place where he knew people would be reading the Law of God, hearing about the holiness of God, hearing about the justice of God, where people's hearts had already been tilled asunder, if you will, by the Word of God and made sensitive to the truth of the Scriptures. And there Paul could sit down, whether it was in a synagogue or outside the city with the riverside, with a group of people who would have been most open to the gospel. That's where he began. He didn't begin with the hardened skeptic. He didn't begin with the person most opposed to the faith. He began with the person who was most open to the gospel, most receptive. But I want you to notice something else about his strategy. Verse 13, We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now, it would be a little bit awkward if the Apostle Paul had gone out to a riverside and here is a group of, say, half a dozen or a dozen ladies who were meeting there for prayer, and for him to open up the scroll and begin to address them like he's in a synagogue with 100 people. That would be a bit awkward, isn't it? What it shows to us is that the Apostle Paul had the ability to preach in front of crowds and also the ability to be very conversational. The Apostle could sit down with you over a cup of coffee and explain the gospel to you and bring it to you in a way that was understandable and powerful. Some people, friends, are gifted to present the gospel in front of crowds. Others are not. Some people have the ability to sit down and explain the gospel with their neighbor over a cup of coffee. Both types of evangelism is necessary. Paul was able to do both. It did not matter whether it was to a Jewish crowd or to a Gentile crowd, to a poor class or to a rich class, to the common everyday worker in the street, or whether it was to Sergius Paulus, the ruler on the island of Cyprus. The Apostle Paul had the ability in front of a hundred or in front of one to present the gospel. Look how flexible he is. And friends, in every venue and in every city, he had success to one degree or another. You know why that is? Because this was his strategy. Go to those who are most open to the gospel and then adjust yourself to their situation and present the gospel to them in a way that they can understand and that it can come to them in power and with effectiveness. That's what he did, walking out by the river. And listen, the sight of a traveling rabbi like Paul would have been welcome to these women. They have met there to read the law, to discuss the law, and to pray. And here comes a rabbi who sits down with his traveling companions, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. You want to have a service? Great. Teach us. And so Paul does. And he just starts to conversationally share Christ with these women. So what happens? Well, the church was started as a result of Paul's strategy, but second, as a result of God's sovereignty. Look at verse 14. A woman named Lydia From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Now look at all of the information that Luke gives us about this woman in just a a brief glimpse. She was a woman from the city of Thyatira. And by the way, Thyatira was a city in the region of Lydia, so likely she got her name because she was from Lydia, the district of Lydia. Uh, Most people think that she probably was just referred to as the Lydian lady and that Lydia was her nickname. Whatever her real name was, they called her Lydia. Why? She was from Lydia. She was the Lydian lady. She was from Thyatira, which is over in Asia. Why is it significant that Lydia was from Asia? Where did Paul try and preach the Word before he went across the Aegean Sea? In Asia. But the Spirit of God said no. The Spirit of God wanted him where? In Philippi. Couldn't the Lord have left Lydia in Thyatira and just let Paul go into Asia and preach the Word in Thyatira? Couldn't the Lord have worked that out? Certainly He could, but He didn't. Why? The apostle, or the Lord, wanted a church started in Philippi, so God in His providence directed this Thyatiran woman to the city of Philippi, and then God in His providence directed the apostle Paul across the Aegean Sea to the city of Philippi. And there, look, Paul came across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia because he saw the vision of a Macedonian man. And the first person he leads to the Lord is what? Not a Macedonian man, but a woman from Asia. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? I wonder if Paul was walking through the marketplace down in the city of Philippi and saying, I'm looking for that guy that appeared to me in the vision. And when I find him, I'm going to lead him to the Lord, because he's the one that called to me. But the first recorded convert in all of the continent of Europe is not a Macedonian man. It's a woman that the Lord had directed there from Asia. Now, Luke tells us that she was a seller of her purple fabrics. That tells us a tremendous amount about Lydia. She sold purple fabrics. Purple fabric was very expensive. It was very expensive because purple dye in those days was only made from the root of a certain plant or from a gland that was in mollusks. And it took, according to one source that I read, 8,000 mollusks to make one gram of purple dye. Very expensive fabric. Only kings wore it and people who had money to burn wore it as a demonstration of their status. It was a way of showing off. If you had purple fabric, you were wealthy. So the business that Lydia is involved in is a high-dollar business. She sells very expensive products. She makes a healthy uh, profit selling expensive products. She is in a high-dollar business. Why was she in Philippi instead of Thyatira? Do you remember what I told you was around the city of Philippi? Gold mines. Philippi is a city filled with very wealthy people who wear very wealthy clothing, and she is able to ply her trade in Philippi like she never could in Thyatira. She is likely a very wealthy woman. You say, is there any reason to assume that? Well, she offers lodging to four people, and it says in verse 15 that she has a household which would have included her servants. That's the word that's used to include everybody who lived under her house. There was a lot of people by the river there. Some of them were her servants. She had a house that was big enough to house these four missionaries, without any form of impropriety or any appearance of impropriety. So she likely had an estate. Furthermore, verse 40 tells us that the brethren, the infant church in Philippi was using her house. So she was likely a wealthy woman. The fact that she was in business for herself indicates that she was likely either a widow or she was single and had never been married because she's an independent businesswoman. And in that day, those are the type of women who own businesses, not women who had means from men. So she's a wealthy woman. She's involved in a very wealthy business in a very wealthy city. She is likely widowed or singled in, uh, single or widowed in some way. And she has gone out on the day of the Sabbath to worship the Lord at the riverside. Paul Luke says that she was a worshiper of God, which is the term that Luke uses to describe God-fearing Gentiles. He doesn't use it to describe Jews. He uses it to describe God-fearing Gentiles like Cornelius and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and now Lydia. A Gentile woman who in her behavior and in her practice, in her belief, had become Jewish. And so rather than being in the city of Philippi, plying her trade on the Sabbath day, she has gathered together with God's people out by the riverside to hear His Word and to worship and to pray. And by the hand of providence, the Apostle Paul stops by. Now look at how this unfolds. Verse 14, She was listening to the things that Paul was saying, And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Read that over again. The Lord opened her heart that she would respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now I want to be honest with you. If you had a problem swallowing Acts 13.48, you're going to have a problem with this verse as well. What did Acts 13.48 say? as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. If you choked on that, you're going to choke on this verse. Because there's only one way that Luke is intending for us to understand this from the context. And it is this, that God is sovereign in salvation. And it is the Lord who opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now Acts 13.48 and Acts 16.14, they go together like a hand in a glove. And here's how. Acts 13.48 says that there is a number. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There is a number that are appointed or ordained to eternal life. All of those believe. How is it that the Lord causes the belief of all those whom He has appointed to eternal life? Acts 16.14. He opens the heart that they would respond to the word of the gospel. There is a number that are the elect. Scripture uses the term elect, ordained, ordained called, appointed, predestined to refer to that number that God has appointed to eternal life. And all of them believe. How is it that all of them believe? Because the Lord opens their hearts to respond to the things which are spoken by the messengers of the gospel. A bit tough for you to swallow on? Well, let me ask you a question. If it was not necessary for her heart to be opened, why does Luke tell us that the Lord opened it? Is she worse than other people, that her heart would need to be opened but yours doesn't? Is she somehow more of a sinner than you are, that the Lord had to specifically work on hers and not on your heart? Would we be reading about the conversion of Lydia if the Lord had not opened her heart? We wouldn't be. But the truth of the matter is, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things that were spoken by Paul. Now, to what do we attribute Lydia's salvation? To Paul? Well, Luke doesn't tell us that Paul opened Lydia's heart to heed to the things that he was saying or to respond to what he was saying. Do we attribute her salvation to herself? Well, no, because Luke doesn't say that Lydia opened up her own heart to heed the things that Paul was saying and to respond to them. To what then do we attribute her salvation? This thing Luke wants us to understand that it was the Lord who opened her heart that she would respond to what Paul was saying. This would be easier for you to understand if I can explain to you a couple of other things. And, And first is this. You and I must understand the need for God's work in our salvation. You see, it all boils down to really this question. How do you view fallen man? What is? How is it that you picture the sinful, unregenerate, fallen human being? Do you think that in the garden... Adam, in his fall and in his sin, simply stumbled a little bit and stubbed his toe and maybe twisted his ankle? Or do you believe that in the garden, Adam in his disobedience plunged the entire human race into a course of sin and depravity from which we are unable to turn in our own strength? You know what Scripture says? Scripture says that you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. You read those verses with me this morning. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, not sick, not ailing, not terminal, dead. We are dead in them. On more than one occasion, the Apostle Paul says, we are dead. Because we are dead men without Christ, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, that our mind is set on the things of the flesh and we cannot set our mind on the things of the Spirit or do that which is pleasing in God's sight. We are unable to do that. Furthermore, Scripture says, because our mind is set on the things of the flesh and it is hostile to God, we are darkened in our understanding and excluded from the life of God, Ephesians chapter 4. And on top of all of that, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them who do not believe so that they cannot behold the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. That is a depressing picture, friends. But that is the truth of what Scripture says no man seeks after god you can call yourself a seeker you can call other people a seeker but scripture says no man seeks after god do you believe what jesus said in john 6:44 no man can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him do you believe that no man can come to me not that no man is permitted it's that no man is able the word has to do with ability No man has the ability. Why? Because dead men don't come. Dead men don't hear. Dead men don't see. Dead men don't believe. They don't exercise faith. They don't give up their sin. They don't turn from their unrighteousness. They don't practice righteousness. Dead men are dead. And you can stand in a cemetery and call out to corpses all day long to get up and turn to God. And they won't. Unless this one thing happens. God opens the heart so that they will believe the word of the gospel. That's the need for God's work in salvation. Because you and I without Christ are dead. Corpses. Not sick and able to do a few things on our own with a little bit of grace we can help the Lord out. We're dead. No man has the ability to come to me. That's a desperate situation. Oh. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now that leads us to the nature of God's work in salvation. We have to understand not only the need for God's work in salvation, but how does that flesh out? What is the nature of God's work in salvation? Simply put, He opens the heart that you will believe the word of the gospel. Our heart is wrapped up in sin, in bondage to sin, chained to self and sin, It is rock hard, unable to respond to the things of the Lord. It is a heart of stone. The Lord must do something. He must take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. What is the nature of that work? Well, let me describe it from your perspective or from my perspective. Somebody came and they presented the Gospel to me, and I ignored it. And then they came and presented the Gospel to me again, and I ignored it. And this probably happened a couple of dozen times. And I began to weigh the claims of Christ. I began to look at the Scriptures and start to understand some of the things and evaluate some of the things. And then there came this day when somebody presented the Gospel to me and I understood I have to have that Savior because I am going to die without Him. And I cannot face the judgment and the justice of God without that Savior. And so I fled to the Savior, and the Savior who was to me an object of my mockery, of my ridicule, and of my disdain, suddenly became for me the most beautiful person in all of the earth. And I was able to see His glory and His love and His grace and His sacrifice for me. And I was convicted and racked by conviction to my very bones of the way I had offended the holy God. And I would stand before Him on judgment day. And I made what I can only call the greatest decision of my life in fleeing to Christ and embracing Him and His work for me. And I fell at His feet and I swear to you on that night that I trusted Christ. I would have sworn to you there was nobody who loved Him more than I did that night. All of that the scripture would describe as this. He opened your heart that you would believe the gospel. From my perspective, all of that went on. None of that would have happened if it were not true that he had opened my heart that I might respond to the word of the gospel. Had God not done that, I wouldn't be standing before you today and I would not be saved. Because I was dead, unable in my own strength to turn to Him. He gave me eyes to see. He removed the blindness. He took my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh. He raised me up. He breathed into me newness of life. He made me willing to run to the Savior. And I believed. You say, Jim, none of that describes me. I wasn't hard. I wasn't sinful. I, by an act of my own ability, came to the Lord. No, you didn't. The Lord opened your heart. You give Him glory or you won't, but the truth is that the Lord opened your heart. And without the nature of that work, you would never have believed. Jesus described being born again as being born of the Spirit. Now, how is it that God makes me willing to come to Christ? How is it that He draws me to Himself? Because Jesus said, no man has the ability to come to me unless the Father draws him. How does that work? That is the work in the ministry of the Spirit of God. The Scriptures talk about how the Spirit of God is involved in our salvation in verses like 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. Our gospel, Paul said to you, did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. The gospel was not just in the words we spoke, but it came to you in power and in the Spirit of God. Titus chapter 3, verses 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy He saved us, according by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul connects election and the work of the Spirit of God in one verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. As many are as appointed to eternal life, believed. Why? Because God opens the heart to respond to the things of the gospel. Now friends, you can sit in front of an unbeliever and you can describe to them the glories of the cross, the glories of heaven, the glories of the Savior, all of the love that He had for Him, the sacrifice that He made. You can take them to, to, uh, passages of scripture and explain to them the grandeur and the majesty and the glory and the beauty of Christ and they cannot see it. Why? They're blind and dead men don't see. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not. Dead men don't see. You can describe to them in all of its wonderful detail how heaven is going to be and what hell is going to be like, and you can describe to them the torments of the lost who have rejected grace and gone on to into a Christless eternity. And they will not be able to hear the screams. Why? Because they're deaf. Dead men don't hear. And you can plead with them to repent, beg of them to be reconciled to God, ask them to place their faith in Christ, beg of them to believe, explain it with all of the articulateness in the world if you want, and if they will not turn, why? Back to what Jesus said. They cannot come to me. One thing is necessary. The Father must draw them. And friends, that is the work of the Spirit of God. Here's the bottom line. It is God who initiates our salvation. James 1.18 In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.3 He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the work of God. Now who among you here can say, Jim, that's not true of me. I didn't need special grace. My heart was not wicked. It was not deceitful above all things. It was not a heart of stone. It was a heart of flesh. I was able by my own will, by my own strength to turn to Him and to do righteousness and to practice godliness and to believe on Him. I was able by an exercise of my own strength to believe. I did not need to be granted repentance or granted faith or elect from the foundation of the world. I needed no grace. I, by my own strength and my own will, brought myself forward by His Word. I caused myself to be born again to a living hope. Friends, if you think that, I have one word for you. You do not know grace. You do not know grace. I am a believer today for one reason and one reason only. In eternity past, God set his love on me. And he sent the shepherd to call his lost sheep. And I heard his voice and I fled to him. And I embraced him. And I loved him. It was not my will. It was not my work. You say, were you dragged to the Savior kicking and screaming against your will? No, I fled to Him. I was completely willing, my friends. He made me willing. He opens the heart that you respond to the things of the gospel. It is His work. It is His doing. And it is all for His glory. And I can boast in nothing. And to be quite honest with you, that's how I like it. I can boast in nothing. And I would have it no other way. It was started as a result of Paul's strategy. The church in Philippi was started as a result of God's sovereignty. The church in Philippi was started as a result of Lydia's service. Look at verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia believed because the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that Paul was saying. Having believed, it says that Lydia and her whole house were baptized. Now, from the way that Luke describes it, I would assume that it was that very day. I would assume that it was immediately. And I would assume that it was likely right in the Ganges River where they had gathered to worship. And Lydia was not alone in her being baptized. It says that her whole household is also baptized, which would have included all of her servants and any dependents that she had who were living with her who had also believed. Now, on a side note, there are those... Brethren that we have who use this verse and two others in the book of Acts that speak of households, quote-unquote, being baptized to build a case for infant baptism because they assume that households would obviously include infants. And there are two other instances. One of them is Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius and his whole household were baptized. Here in Acts chapter 16, Lydia and her whole household are baptized. And in Acts chapter 18, it says that Crispus and his whole household were baptized. Those three instances So when we get to Acts chapter 18, verse 8, we'll deal with the subject of infant baptism. But what I want you to notice now is how quickly she evidenced her faith in believer's baptism by being baptized she and her whole household, that would be everybody else with her who had believed. Not only was she baptized as a believer in obedience to the Lord and identifying herself with Him, but second, look what she does. She says, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, which she's assuming that Paul had, you baptized me, so you obviously believe I'm a believer. So since you believe that I'm a believer, since you've judged me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay with me. She opens her house to be hospitable to Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. She's a very hospitable woman. She obviously has a house that is large enough to to house those men. Her house becomes the base of operations for the whole time that they're in Philippi. And showing Christian hospitality in the first century was something that was needful because all of the inns of that time were dangerous and dirty and, and they were brothels. They were places of immorality, unfitting for a Christian to stay. And so she, immediately upon salvation, she shows Christian g- grace and generosity and says, stay with me. You're going to need a place to stay. And so once the Lord had opened her heart, she opened her home. And friends, that is the sign of an open heart, is an open home. And I ask you, do you practice hospitality to the saints? You invite people over and bless them and minister to them and share with them and and open your home to them? An open home comes from an open heart. Once the heart was opened by the, opened by the Lord, Lydia opened her home and everything she had was the Lord's as far as that, as far as she was concerned. It all belonged to Him. Romans chapter twelve, verse thirteen says that we ought to be diligent at all times to practice hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, Hebrews says. Because some people have entertained angels unaware it was necessary. Now, friends, I have to tell you, having read this whole passage and expounded upon this whole subject of the sovereignty of God and salvation, I'll tell you this, it's encouraging to me. And you know why it's encouraging to me? Because one more time in the book of Acts, as Luke has time and time and time again, he shows to us that ultimately salvation does not depend upon you or I. That is the work of God. Ultimately, it is not the presentation that wins the lost. It is not the articulateness of the communicator. It does not depend upon you being able to answer every objection or deal with every question that an unbeliever might raise. It is your responsibility to present the truth. Go out and find people who are open to the gospel message and sit down with them and share the truth with them, understanding that it all depends upon God who will open the heart. And if He does not open the heart, it doesn't matter how prepared you are, how well you articulate it, or what you say. But if it is God who opens the heart, then friends, you can have all of the confidence in the world, in our God and our Gospel, to go out and to present Christ as if it all depends upon the Lord and leave the results to Him with the confidence that it is the Lord who opens the heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the power of Your Word and for the power of Your Gospel, that it is able to change us and to transform us. And we thank You that our salvation does not depend upon us or upon what we do or upon even what You foresaw that we would do. But it is all by Your grace. All by Your grace. And we have nothing of which to boast. We have nothing of which to take credit. For Lord, if You had not opened our hearts, we would this very day still be lost in sin and bound to sin, and slaves to self, and to sin, and to Satan. But we thank you that by your grace, you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, and translated us into the kingdom of light of your dear Son. We give you praise and thanksgiving today, in his name, for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.